Andrew O'Hagan is the author of the novels Personality and Our Fathers, a finalist for the Booker Prize and the International Impact Dublin Literary Award and the Whitbread Award. But his latest novel, Be Near Me, has just won the Los Angeles Book of the Year Award. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was a wonderful surprise. Yes, yes, so congratulations Thank and you. welcome to the Bibliophile. Good to be here. I'd like to ask uh, some general questions in light of why you write. And the first one uh, has to do with tragedy and one's inability to save oneself. Macbeth's going down the tubes and no one can help him and he doesn't know how to save himself. Yeah. It seems to me that in a way what you've done with your life is you've broken free of that tragedy or that tragic outlook that perhaps your father and your, your grandfather may have had and you've written your own life. Well, you know, there was more opportunity, I think, in my generation to, to write your own story than there was in my father or my grandfather's. I think that although we share uh, crucial elements in our DNA, I think that part of your life that you can really control uh, wasn't so open to them. I think they were much more conditioned by their environment and by the economic reality around them um, to, to live a certain way and to follow certain patterns. Um, it was a very masculine society that I grew up in, and men were expected to... In Glasgow. Yeah. yeah. And they were expected to leave school young and go into work, go into factories and um, fend for themselves, provide for themselves. That rather leisured, uh, opportunistic world that can, has existed for my generation, that many of us take for granted, just wasn't there for them. I'm, I was the first person to go to university in six generations of my family in Scotland. If you look at alcoholism as a disease, you mm -hmm. didn't suffer from that disease either. No, I didn't. Uh, it was always a potential part of the program in as much as there had been so much of it uh, in successive generations of my family on both sides. And many fine, wonderful, intelligent people caught up in, I mean, this vice-like grip. Yeah, ruining of lives. It ruined lives and it broke hearts and it destroyed relationships and it made uh, the possibility of uh, improvement in life difficult. You know, it held them back. Yeah. <coughs> Excuse me. But, you know, again, um, whilst accepting it's a disease, I think uh, environmental and social factors are so crucial when it comes to drink and alcohol abuse. And uh, I think that probably I could see a way forward. Um, I was never so uh, in the grip of anxiety as I think probably my grandfather and my father were. Um, they, they went to the pub because they really had nowhere else to go. Yeah. Well, they, I think you put, you put it beautifully. You talk about you were determined not to be determined. Mm. Yeah. It's the war of personal will against conditioning. And there was so much uh, potential for conditioning in terms of language and economics and how you would live your life. I think we all have that, no matter where we come from. That there is, yeah. There's almost this sort of pre-programmed engine in us. We can, we can override it, though, if we have the will and if we have the opportunity. And I just found that I did. I was able to override the, um, the, the GPS yes. that was there. Um, I, I, I mean, I can relate to the fact that you want to, you want it to be the opposite 
of your father. Uh, and, and, and so it's more than it's just an override, it's more of a you're driven not to fall down the same you know, to hole. Mistakes and, uh, I have to say, as I got older, my father's still around, and we're, we're close, I'm close to each of my parents. I begin to see that there are some things about me that are quite like him, despite all that. Um, <laughs> and uh, there were also certain thing, aspects of him that I do very proudly wish that um, I had more of. He's got a very good sense of humor, my father. And you don't? Um, well, I think I do now, um, but a lot of it's to do with him. You know, he's encouraged that side of me. Yeah. Uh, we spend a lot of time just laughing at things. Um, like what kind of things? Well, I mean, my father's a, a great um, sort of instinct uh, for observing absurdity and self-delusion. So uh, people around uh, who, who might be pretentious or putting on airs, he's the first to spot that. He's very funny and fascinating when we're taking him down and all that. Um, and also, uh, you know, uh, taking himself down. Uh, he's got a lot of charisma. You know, people are attracted to his way of reading the world and uh, his jokes. And I think that um, as, as years have gone on, I see that those parts of him are as interesting to me now as the other parts that I was so keen to reject when I was younger. He must be very proud. Well, he's very good at being proud as well. That's part of his charisma. You know, not everybody can stomach other people's success with a, with a genuine show of good character. But my father really loves any success that I enjoy he's the one probably of all the people in my family who gets most pleasure out of sending copies of my books to others I mean he's had more signed copies of books from me than <laughs> it's possible really to conceive of mm-hmm. um, and that's that, that's a are you living the life that he wished he could have or I think he probably likes the fact that I had the strokes of luck and the opportunities and perhaps some of the talent that um, he would like to have had but I just don't think there's an ounce of resentment in it. Um, I'm very good at spotting that myself. I mean, we we laugh at the sheer luck as much as the um, the hard work. We recognise the hard work, but really, um, he has a wonderful, he's a betting man. And he has a wonderful sense of luck. He thinks I've had just a great run on the course, and it's continuing. Um, right. And he puts his mind on me, to, so to speak. Yeah. Um, and so do the other people in my family. My mother and I were always naturally close. Uh, from a young age, uh, and tuned into each other. She's always had the same interest in pop culture and sort of kind of like you um, but not not shirking the hard business of life either. Um, so my parents, in the end, despite all the uh, the many elements of chaos that have existed in their lives, well, you say at one point they hated each other. Oh yeah, they certainly hated each other. It's difficult growing up in a family where your parents hate each other because. <coughs> You begin to think that that's a natural state of being. Uh, of course, you then grow up and see the world and think probably it is a natural state of being. Um, if the family is the first unit of constitutional um, you know, meaning, yeah. then I'm just about to go to Ramallah and um, the West Bank and probably uh, my experience as a child is very good. <laughs> Preparation for seeing <laughs> utter stuckness, yeah, yeah. Uh, the mutual loathing, uh, the inability to apply imagination and reason to a situation that is actually fixable. Um, well, I grew up with that, um, so I don't find uh, when countries, when whole nations, whole parts of civilization do that, 
I feel that um, I'm, I'm watching something quite familiar. But that's not to take away the sadness of it because it is sad, and I think that when uh, when you grow up in a house like that, you're always left with a tremendous sense of the fallibility of relationships. Well, and a wish that uh, you could somehow uh, repair it. Yeah, I mean, if you have that instinct, and I probably do to some extent, especially as an author. I mean, you sit in rooms creating relationships all day. Yeah literally plant DNA in people you give them a past and a present and a, a history and a, a community to emerge from a set of rationales and so self-respecting when you find you can't quite do that in life you can't put your hand into the centre of, uh, of real relationships in the way that you can in your work maybe that's actually one of the things that creates novelists I was going to say I mean this is a tragic figure can't control his or her destiny mm. here you can I think that's it. I mean, but it would be easy to spin up a very sad story out of all that, but actually my story is the opposite. What's well, a story. huge success story. You had success so early, too. I started responding to the, that urge to write quite young. It's been characterised in some newspapers as I've been running away from a sort of terrifyingly unhappy childhood. I wasn't unhappy. Escaping, I think, that's yeah. the word. Yeah. There's a lot of escape talk, and, you know, it's not for me to knock back other people's interpretations, but obviously I had a lot of happiness that a lot of it was self-discovered, and it's not for a second to deny the utter chaos that existed at times. This last year, at the same event, I interviewed John uh, Burnside, oh, yeah. who had an awful He's relationship. He really is, yeah. He, oh, he wrote a wonderful memoir, but it was about an awful relationship with his father. Oh, yeah. Is that something that all you Scotsmen have to deal with? Is it I think John's, uh, even by his own admission, would, where he here, would say that that was a, a deeply negative, uh, almost unsavable relationship with his father. I loved the book and recognised so much in it, but ultimately it was very different from my experience. You did have, apparently, you did have a difficult, a very difficult time with your father. Very difficult time with him, but it was, it was rescuable. Yeah. You know, and the, the rescuing of it has taken as many years, in fact, as the, um, as the initial difficulty. Most of my adult life now have been friends with my father, but my childhood, my father wasn't friends with anyone, particularly not himself. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? Self-loathing. Uh, what about uh, the thing then that that's driven you to, to to write? Is it, what is it, do you think? The was for pure revenge. <laughs> On what? On the hand that you were dealt? Not really, that's just a joke. I, I think uh, I was always keen to have my say. I was one of those kids at school that always had his hand up. Okay. The <laughs> uh, first in the queue at the library, you know, dead keen to let it be known that I had actually taken something in and I had something to give back out. Well, you know, I wasn't that confident when I was very young, but I, I, let, I actually educated myself into confidence if that's possible. I think people sometimes imagine that reading does the opposite, sends you inward uh, and away from social life, but it, did, it didn't do that to me. It sent me in both directions at once. That's just funny. I've just done some reading of uh, the National Endowment for the uh, Arts. Mm. I've done some studies recently that show that, that readers of literature mm -hmm. are the ones that are most active in society. That doesn't surprise me. Yeah. Um, I grew up in a culture where if you read, you were thought to be a kind of you know, slightly antisocial, inward-seeming, introverted uh, individual, but 
No, I, I think I gained all the confidence I've got from reading great books and seeing just how life worked and how character worked and, um, and also the influence that individuals could have on their societies. Um, I found it natural in a way to take all of that business of the past and where I grew up and, and just use it as a foundation for, for writing. It never seemed at all remote as a possibility to me. Mm-hmm. Although it should have done because there was never any writers in my family. Uh, there was never any possibility, uh, by example, yeah. of earning your living in the arts. I mean, that was an impossible dream. But well, pretty well is an impossible dream for 99.9% of the population. Yeah. But once I was on a roll with it, yeah. I think I just, just grasped it and felt that it was, it was mine. It's, uh, it's, you say here that uh, you feel unlocked by great books and poems, movies and art. They furnish the mind. If you get a book like that in your hands, you're giving yourself a chance to inhabit more fully not only the world you live in, but inhabit yourself. Mm. I think that's it. I think a lot of the tragedies that exist, both personal ones and societal ones, have to do with people not being in a position to imagine fully what life is like. Some people can live their whole lives never really having imagined properly what their place is uh, in a room or in a house or in a society, uh, in a world. Um, what do you mean by that? Like what, what do you, what, like what's, well, I think what can you imagine? If you, if you read George Eliot, what can you imagine? Well, I think if you, if you can use your imagination, then you find it very difficult to contemplate driving a plane into a building full of office workers. Put it that way. I think a lot of the world's troubles are to do with um, not being able fully to imagine other people's reality. Mm. Um, that we live only narcissistically in relation to our own needs, our own suppositions, our own doubts and suspicions and paranoias. Uh, but um, also ideologies. I mean, and ideologies, I mean, it's equally, I mean, those, those um, allied forces, those American and British uh, pilots who are able to drop bombs from 15,000 feet on villages, they can't imagine those villages. They can't imagine what's happening in the ground. There's a sort of divorce and un- unimagined uh, condition exists. And... I think it's behind so much of what goes wrong in the world. Well, they 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 have to, otherwise they they uh, either go mad or or desert. Yeah, maybe they just you know they would. And then we'd be under a Nazi regime. Uh. Well, I don't know that that would follow. I think that the people who followed Hitler were caught up in a an excess of mad charisma. Each of our societies, there's a temptation to view. Uh, particular societies being the very height of civilization and everything being somehow, you know, some prehistoric, you know, savagery that we can only do well to educate and bring into the light. Well, that's a medieval view of the world, but we're still living with it today. And I think just applying a bit of imagination, a bit of pluralism, Mm. that, you know, you don't have to hate the Israelis in order to see that the Palestinians have an argument. Equally, you don't need to support Hezbollah or in any way think that they're reasonable in what they say to, to make the argument that Israel, in terms of its own survival, should get out of the West Bank. By saying that, you, you open yourself up to the possibility of being called a racist, which is, which is sort of the flip side. 
How do you mean? If you support the Palestinian movement for their own land, mm-hmm. you're susceptible to claims of being anti-Israeli. Of course. One's always going to be open to being accused by somebody of being disloyal or a partisan. You know, we've got to make moral judgments in the world. We do every day. You know, we walk down the street, we make moral judgments almost unconsciously all the time. Driving a car down the street, you know, you're following rules and habits in order to keep security and safety uppermost in the town. You have to make these judgments, and there'll be some people who are ready to say, wait a minute, there's no consensus on this. So even by breathing your view out into the world, you're expressing uh, something unacceptable. If you're a writer in that position, then you're potentially breathing unacceptable stuff out every day. There's always going to be somebody. I've written a book about a priest mm-hmm. in a small Scottish town. You know, there's going to be people who say, this book's anti-Catholic, this book's pro-homosexual, this book's anti-children, this book's anti-the working class, this book's anti-English. You know, if people want to read the world in that way, you'll always find a cause for being disgruntled and being unhappy. And, and writers have to take that on the chin. A writer who tried to please everybody would end up pleasing nobody. It right. certainly not write good books. Uh, we've got to see the, tell the truth as you see it. And as readers, I think, good readers know how to take on a polyphony of voices into their lives and say, fine, if you're a black South African in 1977, you're going to have a particular view about the white nationalist government. Needless to say, if you're a white nationalist politician who comes from three generations of African politicians, you're going to have a particular view about blacks and townships. You know, we accept that there are oppositions in the world, but we have to take a stance eventually, as we did over apartheid, and say, that is wrong. Mm-hmm. On the principle of one man, one vote, that is wrong. So those who have forward thinking capacity, progressive thinking, in relation to somewhere like Israel, find themselves saying that, well, let's forget all this name-calling. The demographics of the situation suggest that in 10 years' time there are going to be more Arabs living in those lands than there are Jews. If the Israelis today do not go for the two-state option and pursue this one-state option, they may end up being voted off their own land. So even those of us who want two states, I'm not just saying that because we think the Palestinians have been badly treated. That's fine. Mm. That's one argument. It's not the only argument. A more important argument now is that the Israeli state might might cease to exist as a result of this mistaken policy of not just accepting that they are not going to win that argument. Mm. Sometimes in life, and as a writer, you've just got to say, I'm not going to be able to make that case. It's maturity. And the Israelis have spent a hundred years failing to make that case. Despite many great successes and wins, and some not so great ones, they are occupying that territory in a way that is against their own survival interests. And that's what, that's what you might come to. Now, there'll be people who could immediately line up, not only Zionists, but people from many different persuasions, including American politicians, and say, no, 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 we must fight for the independent, complete, uh, legitimate state of Israel against all terrorist incursions, and that's how they frame the argument. So you see how it goes on. We can never have a monopoly on being right and true and observably um, moral on any of these questions. Mm. It's 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 like uh, reading a, a literary text. Mm. 
as you said, there's uh, there's so many different. We we all bring so many different backgrounds to it's it. What's your job as a novelist? You know, is to put it out there for people. My job isn't to tell you what to think, no. or to let you to give you you know uh, the lowdown on what I think of Catholic uh, priests who you know have uncertain or misdirected sexual urges. You know, that's not my job. My job is to furnish you with the material with which to create a moral drama within your own intelligence. Intelligent people who pick up novels, that's what they're looking for. I don't know about that. I mean, I, I, I like... Maybe I'm not an intelligent person. <laughs> I do like life lessons. I do yeah. look for... You can uh, get those lessons more effectively if you do the math than yeah. if I give you the math. If yeah. I say to you, here's a moral conundrum where there's moral strength and weakness on either side of the picture, and I really give you characters who, like in life, yeah. Are they're not all bad or they're not all no, good. They have both terrible and lovely things about them all mm. going simultaneously. That's why often the plots that pit mm. the good against the good are yeah. often as interesting or more I interesting. So. I think so. You're right there. I mean, you newspapers live in a world of black and white. Mm. You know, mm. Novelists live in that grey tundra in between, <laughs> I think, if they're any good. Yeah. Because uh, I do want to activate some sort of moral progression in your mind as a reader mm. but I want to suggest 2 plus 2 I want you to figure out that it means it comes to mm. 4 mm. you know or my imagination may allow it to go to 5 exactly and that's, that's something that you can do mm. but I like the idea that, that novels are they provoke thought they don't just constitute thought mm-hmm. what about the novelist crossing over into the political world uh, like Martin Amos has recently I would have my disagreements with, with those particular essays that uh, Martin Amos wrote, but um, I have to say that I've always admired the tendency of certain kinds of novelists to engage to with the engage world. With the world. Yeah. It, it seems to me a, a crucial aspect of a certain kind of talent, and I choose my words carefully, it's a certain kind of talent. Not all novelists should be manning the barricades, having mm. for friend, you know. Novelists are seldom very good politicians simply because the demands of compromise required of a good politician they're, they're often naturally yeah. Well, uh, it's interesting because on the page the uh, the writer is a fascist mm. yeah. and you want to take them, they, they want to control everything. You want to control everything and you also, in a sense, even with a, an open heart, you want to believe that you can prioritize one kind of life over another. I go as far as to say you almost need to be quite a bad person to be a very good politician. And I think the best politicians have been fundamentally, utterly divisive as individuals. They can literally run with the hair and the hands. Mm -hmm. They know how to um, manage other people's dissatisfactions and expectations in relation to their own in a way that is almost fundamentally if they're good Machiavellian you know yeah, stay in power a very good man could never be a good prime minister that's why Gordon Brown's having so much trouble he's fundamentally he's a Scot too of he's, course yeah he's a Scot and he's a good man and he's also too intelligent if he were less intelligent he wouldn't have, he wouldn't the other week have tried to uh, get rid of the 10 pence tax bottom rate of tax because he would have known that the elections were coming up I and mean, we're sitting here talking today and if we were to turn on to News 24 we'd see that the Tories are sweeping Britain in these elections today um, and that's a, res- a result of a good man trying to do a good thing but doing it 
uh, at the wrong time and in the wrong way without any understanding of how it would be used by his political opponents. He's not what Tony Blair always said about him was that he, he Tony Blair, was the politician, he was the prime ministerial character, and it proved in the end to be the case. Gordon Brown just wasn't, he didn't have that stroking, you know, I feel your pain, you know, uh, duplicity. Yeah, which Tony Blair had to his fingertips. I mean, Tony Blair eventually persuaded himself that his own moral feeling about Iraq was enough to take the whole country into war. And he felt it was the right thing to do, rather than judged in some strategic way whether it would be the right thing. But anyway, uh, we're talking a lot about politics. Yeah. But I do think yeah. it's important to answer your question that George Orwell, you know, went off to the Spanish Civil War, and so did many poets and writers. Britain has a tradition of writers getting involved in the shaping of society. Mm. And we're seeing that, we're talking about Israel a minute ago, we look at how that's... It seems to be on your mind a fair amount. Is there, is there, uh, you... you I'm just about to go there. Yeah. Um, so it's very much on my mind because it's the 60th anniversary of Israel. And, and also I've been watching what's been happening, this is an answer to your question actually, what's been happening there with the novelists taking a very, very primary role in trying to get out of this Quagmire. I'm talking particularly of David Grossman, Amos Oz, and Zabi Yehoshua, those three prominent Israeli novelists actually taking on the Prime Minister and saying, this is about the future, this is the time now to save the state. Not by banging on in the way that we have, but by, by moving away. So that's an example of what you've described, the Amos thing, of actually thinking, wait a minute, I'm not going to sit here in my study dreaming lovely dreams yeah. whilst the world is on fire. My hose out. Or indeed, well, I'm going to tip the petrol can. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Again, this, this reason I bring up, and I'm speaking with uh, An- uh, Andrew O'Hagan, the proud uh, recent winner of the uh, Los Angeles Book Award, it has to do with racism, being called a racist. Amos has stated his position. He may have blurted out something that made him look like a racist, and he regrets that. But the fact that he's spoken out about the dangers of Islamism, I don't know what percentage of the Brits think he's a, a racist, but it's well, pretty significant, isn't it? The problem is this. You know, some situations in life are too careless for the carefulness of prose. You know, sitting down and writing a careful, beautiful sentence about something. Did you read the second plane? Yes. Yeah. I found exactly that. I found that the prose was too clever for such a serious topic. Yeah, and I think that that's the problem for a writer because... No matter what you're involved in, if you're really involved, you're involved at the level of style as well. You know, uh, you can't suddenly rid yourself of your DNA as a writer just because you know you want people to to hear you clearly or um, in, in a very straightforward way. You have to follow the rhythm of what seems native to you as a speaker and as a writer. Um, but that runs into problems, and that some situations just demand. Uh, almost the absence of any kind of literary style. Um, yes, exactly. The yeah. public seems to demand it. I don't know that they're right to demand it. I'm not saying it's legitimate or illegitimate to demand it. I just know that they do. Yeah. Uh, and critics of Amos's book have, have, have seized on that as if the subject is too serious for his particular 
or nay manner as a writer um, I don't have a position on that um, I just have to say that um, what we need to be aware of in all of this is the influence of the politically correct that, that he somehow shouldn't have written it because uh, the majority of people would think him a racist you know I don't think a writer can afford to give a damn what people are going to think of them for having written it. I think he should be pl- uh, applauded for at least pushing this out into the public. That's one he, positive know, way of looking what he's done. He's obeying his primal instinct, which is to try and write well about a complexity that's totally alive in people's lives. That's the beginning and the end of it for him. Mm. The readers can say what they need to say. Critics can say what they are moved to say. But the idea that he was wrong to write a book simply because it would cause people to throw up their hands and say, I can't agree, or uh, that insults the Muslim population. Well, you know, I say this as someone who finds it hard to agree with almost anything in that particular book, that I would defend to the last breath his right to have produced it. Because where do we go when we start saying that we don't want people to publish books because we don't agree with them? You're sounding like uh, Burke or Hume or... That's, 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 where, that's where it comes from, you know. Once you start telling people they can't publish books that you don't like or you don't agree with, then yeah. fascism is just right there for you, waiting with open arms. Yeah. Um, these burn books then that we don't like, you know. So... Actually, the real test of your liberalism or indeed your political character is not how well you defend the things that you agree with, yeah. but how thoroughgoingly you protect the right of people right to offend you or to. Yeah. yeah. That's why the, the Muslim question at the moment, that's where the bigger part of it, uh, at least in the intellectual arena, falls down because it wants to annihilate people. We don't agree. Well, you know, it's funny because the same sort of thing holds in the States where people, people a, lot, a lot of the critics of Bush just call him an ignoramus. Mm. Uh, that shuts down conversation pretty quickly. One of the things that's been noticeable over the last couple of generations, I think, is the, the falling away of a real uh, culture of dissent in the United States. I mean, I bring it up because all of us, each of our cultures, are living with that now. You know, there's very hard to say anything uh, in a mainstream venue in the United States at the moment, I mean post 9-11 mm-hmm. there was a kind of conspiracy of silence um, I don't mean a conspiracy in the old fashioned paranoid way you know, I just mean simply an unconscious agreement between editors and producers and broadcasters and people like us talking, just not to go there it's unpatriotic. You know, it's unpatriotic to question whether America had played some role in creating the conditions for its own abuse, in a way. And I think at a basic level, people who did understand that it probably had. That its foreign policy actions over the years had been cynical and self-serving, and they had actually found the flames of hatred in many parts of the world. That's not a very complicated thing to say. Mm. It would be true of many of our countries. Britain did it for hundreds of years. You know, with native populations as far apart as India and Australia, you know, we spent our whole time trampling on native rights and then being surprised when there was an uprising. Um, and of course, in newspapers then, if somebody had written a piece in the Times saying, you know, I think that um, Gordon's treatment of the people of Khartoum may well have contributed to their final uprising, we would have said, unpatriotic, mm. hateful individual, nihilist, 
yeah. you know, bringing down the spears on his own people's heads. Oh, and again, that's, again, that's, that's anti-democratic to, to, to shout people down like that, but that's happening, uh, you More say? and more. Yeah. People are being dragged off television for saying the, the unacceptable thing. It's probably never been so easy to sound like a completely crazy person as it is now. You can sound crazy for saying pretty innocuous things now yeah. in relation to some subjects. Yeah. And this Muslim uh, uh, question is one of them. If you express anything like sympathy, empathy for the condition of those peoples who find America hard to take, then <laughs> it's easy to be thought to be some sort of raving lunatic. Look at uh, Pinter, mm. Harold Pinter's Nobel Prize winning uh, acceptance speech. That was really, really powerful stuff. It was just but fueled by such anger. And yeah, I mean, he spent 40 years feeling angry with America, you know. Yeah. Um, but what I wonder is if he hasn't been admirably consistent in his vigilance and in his outspokenness about um, American foreign policy, because we're, we're here in the anniversary of 1968 is upon us. I always know that because I'm 40 on the 25th of May, and I was born in 1968. And here we are with many of the same dissatisfactions in terms of foreign policy hanging over us as, as we're hanging over us at the time of the Tet Offensive. Yeah. It's actually amazing that we, in that time, we've worked out how to clone human beings and send messages by wireless machine around the globe and send men into space. Yet we haven't worked out how to stop pissing off countries that we have no business interfering in. The most fundamental contact of human relations, we haven't worked out how to do that. And that seems to me an amazing thing to realize. Well, we haven't changed human time. nature, I suppose, that's what you're saying. Well, we have in other ways that have, have been to the benefit of humankind. I mean, we've managed to harness people's instinct to make, to make money, must be one of the most fundamental ones. And indeed, capitalism has run rampant over the world. But it's also had some fantastically good effects, the way that um, I think we've become more benevolent Look at Bill in Gates. Many ways. Yeah. yeah, I mean, big capitalism. Much as I'm, I suppose, I suppose, hotwired to hate it. I don't. I find myself not hating it. I've been a UNICEF ambassador for the last eight years, and I've noticed how philanthropy is a reality in this world. And it's funny, you know, criticizing the United States. They they have enormous foundations that provide billions of people with benefits. The United States, or who's any natural, true feeling for the place, knows how to both adore it and be distressed by it. It has the best and the worst of everything, doesn't it? This book of essays of mine is coming out in June. It's called The Atlantic Ocean. This essay is about Britain and America, and it's really a love story Hmm. gone wrong. (laughs) It's a portrait of a marriage, uh, a comedy of errors. It assumes a natural affiliation for somebody like me growing up in the west coast of Scotland looking across that water and thinking America is out there and just as I would be imagining all the sort of delights and strange fantasies that America could represent that were positive in our life the, the, the wonderful movies the, the literature mm-hmm. uh, the cowboys the sense of the frontier uh, of forward movement of Kennedy and the space campaign you know I think about them and just as I was watching the water uh, these submarines from Faz Lane would come down, these nuclear submarines there was an American submarine base at Faz Lane on the west coast of Scotland and we'd watch these 
repulse and revenge, they were called these different submarines. So, in that one scene was contained the whole of a lifetime's feeling about the relationship between Britain and America for me. The very, very beautiful and can-do and optimistic. Energetic. And energetic and uh, philanthropic versus the destructive, mm -hmm. uh, the unfeeling and the dark. And the imperialist. And the imperialist. And, you know, we, we live with both. But that's, as a novelist, what I've always cared about is getting the ambivalence going. Yeah. We don't need to only love or only hate. Well, it's like the Scots. The Scots don't only wear kilts. Yeah. I mean, it's, you don't allow yourself to be defined by a cliché, a single cliché. You know, we're multifaceted organisms, and we probably do best when we are least insistent about our natural state. You know, we're open to the idea of the opposite also being a bit true. Yeah, I'm a bit like this, but I can see that there's validity in being a bit like that, you know. A little bit of come and go is what we've found it hardest to hold on to, strangely. What's interesting, you've lived that with your father, haven't you, in a way? It's been the story of my life. Yeah. It's learning how to say, well, that looks pretty much defined. Let's look at it from another point in the room. And I, I find it natural to do that now. I don't... Maybe it's a Scottish thing versus a British, you know, so it's like Canadian well, versus like American. two-mindedness in Scottish literature. You know, it's no accident that the two great key texts in about ambivalence and duality are Scottish. That's famously Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and a wonderful novel by James Hogg of the 19th century called um, Confessions of a Justified Sinner. Again, a novel that's full of a sense of uh, the two-sidedness of human nature. And as a Scot, I find it quite natural to say, bring on, bring them on. Andrew O'Hagan, talking about that, and we'll wind up our discussion with this, uh, just because it's, it's, it's been in the news for well, since uh, James Frey did his oh, yeah. number with, uh, with Oprah, but even more recently, uh, all sorts of memoirs coming to light that they're, I saw that, yeah. they're not actually memoirs. And you've been classified as someone who finds the borderline between fiction, memoir, documentary, and journalism permeable. I wonder why why there's such a stink about it. I mean, I, I suppose it's just the fact that the publishers and the authors have misled their reading so, public. Yeah, they've, they've, they've instigated a category mistake. You know, they allowed people to come into the work under false pretenses. You know, they've, they've called it a memoir. Well, it should have just really been a novel, and it would have been perfectly acceptable. But like, apparently, he wasn't able to sell it as a novel, though. Well, that's the thing. There's such a thrust for uh, so-called reality, reality uh, TV. And yeah, in our culture, reality TV, you know, um, true crime stories. Uh, it's existed in the culture now for for, for several decades, um, but it's really ripe at the moment. As you say, reality TV, people feel they, they get an extra buzz out of the notion that things really happened. Like. You'd, you go through the cable channels now and every other show is some cop car turning upside down on a freeway, you know, and it's obviously people getting off on the idea that this is actually happening now, you know, it's happening in front of me, it's not a scene from, you know, Gone in 60 Seconds or, you know, Die Hard, 
is actually happening just very much like the impact of 9-11 was heightened uh, beyond all recognition because it felt like an, an amazing reality TV spectacle. Didn't it, yeah. It looked like a movie. That enhanced everybody's. I mean, they couldn't believe they were watching it on TV. Now, explosions and terrible losses of death like that happen all the time in the world in situations of horrible famines, horrible uh, acts of God, as they used to be called, you know, hurricanes and so on, but also earthquakes, and, but, but also man-made disasters like piles of bombs being dropped, uh, you know, from 15,000 feet, thousands of lives being lost, um, but you don't see it live on TV. And obviously there are other factors, you don't see it in the American mainland and you don't see it in you know, a, an urbanized area that isn't in a state of war, so I accept all that too. But nevertheless, there was something about the TV spectacular that we love, and I think it's there in our culture at every level, such that even writers in their modest state are now encouraged to pep up um, or turn up the volume on the real aspects of their writing. So I don't know how many things have been called by publishers and by uh, newspapers to write true life accounts of quite spectacular subjects, especially ones involving murder and so on. Of course, I have an interest, as everybody does, in spectacular stories, surprising tales of uh, disappearance and death. I've certainly done my share. The Missing. The Missing was a, a, a rumination on uh, disappearance, you know, but in many cases, I mean, it was really about that. And I think you mentioned, though, that you could have written it in a novel. People thought that it was going to be a novel, but, you, but it wasn't. It was yeah, I, mean, it was, I think it was expected to be a novel, but I saw um, that actually the better book that I had to write was, was a very personal book. It used my own life. Your grandfather. Uh, and my grandfather and the story of my own childhood and the disappearances that had occurred then as a better foundation for that particular book. But maybe I was just caught up in that general sort of, you know, excitement that people had for non-fiction. Anyway, it felt very natural to do it as a non-fiction book at the time. Right. And I haven't written a non-fiction book since, although I, I imagine I will um, at some point. But I, I, I feel sorry for those guys who get caught up in the whole, you know, public disaster on opera of their books being, you know, turns out they were fabricated allegedly and so on. But for me, they were just caught up in a kind of publishing dilemma. And the public so enjoys the idea that, you know, a guy who's describing a drug binge actually experienced it for himself. Maybe there's a bit of a failure of imagination in the public's part there, that why, why couldn't it just be as enjoyable if it was uh, in a novel by William Burroughs or yeah, yeah. I, I don't know, but um, well, maybe maybe it's the fact that the you've said the publisher wants to call it nonfiction because it'll get bigger sales than a novel will. The bigger sales, and um, I guess that it's easier to do the media to get them, you know, into the studio and they talk about their sad lives and people respond to that rather than some some young guy come on and say, "Well, you know, I applied my imagination." <laughs> and, you know, yeah. so people are bored uh, very quickly with the products. Of fiction in their own in their own context. If they're lovers of fiction, then that's different. And there are many, okay. uh, thankfully, for those of us who live by them, there are yes. many lovers of fiction. But but in the everyday context, especially in the mainstream media, daytime TV. I mean, if you write a book called "My Ass Is So Fat It's Getting Me Down," you'll be on those daytime shows as fast as you can snap your fingers. But if you write a sort of you know, spend ten years writing a sort of heartbreaking 
book about you know American society since Martin Luther King, then you'd be lucky if you get you know airtime, mm. and that's uh, that's not right. You know, if it was the other way around, I think we'd all feel a bit healthier. Just in closing here, there's a lovely little tale you tell when you when you moved into the, the new uh, housing development. I wonder if you could uh, just in closing relay that. We moved to a brand new housing estate outside Glasgow. It was meant for what they used to call the Glasgow overspill. Too many people in the city centre, get them out of the slums, get them away from the dark tenements, and the new post-war glittering housing down by the coast, which was built for us. So we turned up there, young family, myself, my three brothers, my mum and dad, and it was the first house we'd ever lived in that had an inside bathroom. You know, in Glasgow, you used to just go down onto the tenement stairwell, and there was a shared uh, toilet for the whole uh, building. But here we were in this new housing estate. It's an amazing experience, a part of social history now, really, to talk about having lived in a house where nobody had lived before. The wallpaper we put on the walls was the first wallpaper that had ever been pasted up there. It gives you a tremendous sense of utopian values that. I think a lot of my instincts as a writer come from those images. But the most striking of all was that when we did bundle upstairs with my mother to look at this legendary bathroom, uh, the local corporation had tied red ribbons around the taps as if they were giving us a present, which they were. My mother immediately ran the bath and put the poor boys in there, and it was a, it was a memorable experience. But as I say, those images are the kinds of thing that you live very deep in your memory and in your imagination as a writer and I think that they serve you in all sorts of ways through the books and through the stories. The, those housing estates that I've just described were, uh, they were uniform, you know, we all had the same white door and black picket fence. And then, suddenly, in 1980 or 81, you began to see that people were buying the council property. The first evidence of, of it was that they immediately painted the front door. Because you weren't allowed to paint a corporation <laughs> front door under the old socialist system. Everybody had the same door. The guys who worked for the council, they came round and freshened up the doors once a year, but everybody had the same colour door. But under the new system, where people were self you know, owner-occupiers, the first thing they did, I mean, they always got the paint with the bank loan and they would paint their fence and they'd paint their... So suddenly you were living in this kind of Legoland, you know, where everybody had a different coloured door. And I remember looking at those doors at that time and saying, yeah, life will never be the same again in this community, you know. Because it's all now about who's got the old door, you know, who's still got that old white door status. from the yeah. the status come in. I've watched, you know, that process of status become a, become a local obsession. I didn't have to, you know, read about the sort of fortunes of the World Bank to work out what was happening in people's lives. You, and that's where a novelist lives. That's how a novelist works. It's about the colour of the doors and those people whose ambitions invested in a tin of gloss, you know, uh, and the people who were left behind with the white doors just went further down, in some sense, into a traditional kind of quagmire, whilst those with the multicoloured doors went on to conquer the world. Thanks so much for Thanks your so much. time. Andrew O'Hagan, now you're coming out with a, the latest book is, is a book of essays, you say? I'll be coming out in June, yes, it's called The Atlantic Ocean, Essays About Britain and America. But the book that um, is most on my mind at the moment has been this novel, Be Near Me, which I'm delighted to have just published here in Canada in paperback. Very good.
Thanks again. Thanks.